Welcome to Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special episode of the show is my co-host, Tired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, my co-director of outreach and the editor of the latest edition of the Chief's Guide. He's joining us from our Hampton Roads detachment. Hello, Paul. How are you? Good, Ward. How's it going? It's going good. You got a Rolling Stones poster on your wall behind you there. I do. I got the whole collection. There's Rolling Stones. There's Cage the Elephant, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. A nice. lot of, I think, stuff you would listen to, right? Yeah. Yeah. On my wall behind me, you can see there's Kurt Cobain, right? And, uh, yes. And John Lennon over this shoulder. Abs- and then you can't see, these are the concerts I went to when I was working uh, at a different company out of San Francisco. We used to go to the Fillmore. And when you walk out of the Fillmore back in the day, um, and so this was like the late aughts, they would hand you a poster as you walk out, right? When the show's over and, and it's suitable for framing. So I have two posters. I have Crowded House, which is a cool band that I love, and The Darkness, which is another cool band. I don't know if you ever heard of The Darkness, but uh, no, they had a big hit the other uh, years ago called I Believe in a Thing Called Love. It was actually used in a Dr. Pepper commercial. Um, yeah. But they're awesome. They're they're fantastic. It's rock and roll. It's Marshall amps and Les Pauls. And the I'm vocalist awesome. has a really high voice. And, and they're Brits. And so they do all the British stuff. Um, it's like if Spinal Tap was good, they'd be the darkness. You know, Absolutely. it's really good. So anyway. Yeah, we were going to go hit some concerts this year. And uh, obviously, COVID got in the way there. So I'm waiting for that whole thing to turn back on again and be able to get no, out there. No, I know live music stuff. Yeah, that's my lifeblood. You know, I mean, I live a mile away from a major venue here in Annapolis, Ramshead. Um, we were supposed to see David Crosby in June, and uh, obviously that got canceled along with everything else. They're kind of slowly trying to redo, you know, reopen up a little bit and do social distancing, but uh, the acts they have are like tribute bands and you know, you know, whatever. It's not real artists yet. So, uh, yes. you know, crawl, walk, run back to normalcy, I guess. Yeah, so we'll get there. We will get there. I hope so. You know, I don't know when, but know. we will get there. All right. So why don't we get right to our guest? Today, uh, it's my pleasure and I'm excited to welcome Petty Officer First Class Ashley Derenbecker to the Proceedings Podcast. She was the author of uh, October edition of Proceedings from the Deck Plates article, Final Battle Problem, Turn It Up to Eleven. Born in Austin, Texas, but enlisted in the Navy in Dallas in 2014. She currently serves as an Aegis type of fire controlman. And uh, she's currently aboard USS Bunker Hill, CG-52. And right now she's serving as the Assistant Combat System Maintenance Manager, planning and leading combat systems training teams and drills. And she also assists in integrated air and missile defense planning on the Whiskey Planning Team. So she has great impact on the warfighting readiness and capability of that unit. Ashley, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Congratulations getting published. How's everything going for you? Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Things are going well. You know, we just finished the deployment back in July and we're getting ready to head out again. So we're uh, we're seeing the full force of this new back-to-back deployment routine they're trying to push. Uh, more deployments, more force out there. And with the COVID environment, it's actually been really interesting. We, we saw two ports our last deployment, and we were told, expect none this time. You know, it changes a little bit, the preparations you're doing, what you bring on board, uh, and what to expect with the deployment. But otherwise, going really well. We've done a lot of training. We've done a lot of workups coming up to this deployment um, and the last one. So it's been really interesting, really busy. Our team is working really hard and getting through it. Uh, ship has been deemed ready to go. 
So talk a little bit more before we get into the context of your article. Um, so I think it was USS Stout just got back from a record deployment, no port visits. I mean, I've deployed, but not that long before. So what's the tone? I mean, what are, what are sailors thinking about those kind of deployments? And what do you think about as a leader on how you can help keep things positive? It's been, it's been difficult. In addition to my combat roles, I am the assistant suicide prevention coordinator on board, and I have a background in psychology. You know, I would like to go into military psychology in the future, and it's definitely been an interesting year. Um, we have seen a lot more need for mental health resources. Uh, we have seen a lot more people speak up and reach out and ask for what they need, which is really good, but we've also seen a lot more support. You know, the resources we have around San Diego um, are adapting to the times. A lot of resources, pretty much all of the resources are on phone or some form of video chat now, uh, which makes it a little bit easier to access. If you can't leave the ship and go in person, you can make a phone call. That's been helpful, but it, it is definitely um, stressful times. What we've seen this year, we had, you know, there's the typical adjustment period when you come back from a deployment, the typical adjustment period when you leave for deployment. And then we had to come back and adjust to the COVID environment. And so we kind of threw all three of those together. Um, and we've seen a lot of a lot of team building, actually. People people on board seem to have gotten a lot closer, um, a lot more open with each other, and kind of bonded over this experience. While it's been difficult, um, you know, we have the full support of our chain of command, and we've, we've done the best that we can with it. And people are, for the most part, ready to go, ready to come get this next deployment going, get it over with, um, and come back home and try to hopefully get back to a normal environment. Uh, we did kind of all expect when COVID started back in March, we did all kind of expect to come home still to our normal lives in San Diego. Um, and we're really surprised when we got back and it was still all shut down. That adjustment was intense. Everything was different. And the rules, you know, what we can and can't do. And most of us haven't been able to go see our families this year. Um, but they were able to work it out where over the next month or two, while we're Leading up to this deployment, um, our captain's allowing us to go home to certain areas uh, with certain travel restrictions. Yeah, it's a difficult uh, leadership situation to lead through, but it takes creativity. And uh, I like that point you made about, you know, bringing team together because we talk toughness and resilience, right? One of the components is feeling that association with your tribe or your team and a sense of identity, something bigger than you. So I think that's uh, that's a great approach. So, all right, let's kick into your article here. So this really resonated with me. Hey, also Chris Miner wrote that article, focused on the damage control side of things. And I think yours kind of gets more into, as your rating suggests, into the operational readiness piece, right? And I would offer, you know, when we talk about the high-end fight, before we get into damage control, the world you live in and the world you operate up there in CIC and combat I love your appreciation for that and your passion to make sure that that piece is tight, too. So quoting from your article here, you said, I've been in the Navy more than five years and have received no formal training on tactics. The final battle problem was the best training I've received thus far. So my first question is, tell me, why did this training impact you so much? Well, the training that we did for our final battle problem was a little different than what we've done before. So I've been through, you know, fleet synthetic trainings combat systems training team environment scenarios. Um, and I even went up, I got the opportunity to go up to Fallon for uh, air defense syndicate um, and training for a week with our entire strike group. What we noticed with those is that everything's kind of a building stepping block, right? You crawl, then you walk, then you run. Um, but you kind of know what to expect. You know what's coming, you know where it's coming from, you know who the bad guys are. There's not really any neutral in these events. It's good or bad. You know who the good guys are, therefore by default, everybody else is bad. And so what we did with the final battle problem is 
our system test officer at the time, uh, Warren Officer Woods, he, well, he took the training that we had and he amped it up a little bit, right? And he shot a few more missiles at us than we expected. He kind of built it to where, you know, he was simulating as if he was actually the enemy, where you're not going to get one or two missiles at a time, you're going to get eight. And then you're going to get eight from another direction. You could have, you know, three or four directions at once. Um, They're not going to shoot one or two missiles from the north and then wait 10 minutes while you fix that damage damage control problem and then move on and shoot again from the north from the same place. Yes. You know, they're going to shoot multiple salvos at you from different directions from multiple platforms at once, at least in my opinion. And so he kind of simulated that. And there were platforms that we didn't necessarily realize were out there that he was shooting at us from. So that was a little bit of a surprise. It wasn't necessarily the direction he thought it was coming from. And then he went around and um, pulled some key watchstanders out to see what would happen. So he pulled our uh, anti-air warfare coordinator, who was coordinating the offense of our air defense, right? So he goes in and he pulls that guy out. He's like, hey, you're overwhelmed. So he gets pulled out of the equation and, and one of the junior OSs stepped up and jumped into that role right away. She and I had just started training for uh, anti-air warfare coordinator that month. And then they did the same thing with the tactical actions officer. They pulled him out uh, and somebody, again, had to jump in and take over, which that was a kind of funny one because miraculously... The original anti-air warfare coordinator was all of a sudden better and took over to TAO. But it was it was definitely a different element that we threw in, right? We made sure that people understood, like, in those environments, when you are being shot at, when your life is in danger, you're trying to fight the ship and save the ship from combat, people are going to get stressed. Some people are going to get overwhelmed, right? But what I noticed with that environment is even then, there was a break in the battle for us to eat lunch. They had just enough time to distribute MREs and eat your MREs across the whole ship before the enemy started fighting again. We were all joking about it. We're like, okay, hey, China, pause, please stop shooting at us. It's time for lunch. Is that really realistic? And what it is, is that leadership doesn't feel like they can push you that hard, right? They don't want to give you where you can't eat a meal, where you can't whatever. I have a senior chief on board who was on board the USS Cole in Yemen. And he talks about, you know, in that actual casualty, in an actual environment where your adrenaline's running high, are you really going to be able to eat? No, you're going to go hours and hours and hours before you realize that you haven't slept, you haven't eaten, you haven't taken a break because you're so focused on your life and the life of those around you that you're not really worried about what's in your body. And when your adrenaline is that amped up and that high, you probably can't eat anyway. That was kind of what the idea that, that came to me that time was, you know, we had this, I think it was a four hour training. We knew what time it was starting. We knew what time it was ending. And we had a lunch break in the middle of it. And it was in the middle of the day. And I was like, we knew what time it started. We knew what time it ended. Therefore, we knew about the time, especially in combat. We knew about the time that things were going to amp up. People were going to fire at us. We got the pause for lunch because we knew they were distributing MREs. But in reality, that's not how it's going to be. It could be days. It could be longer than that, right? And what happens when we run out of missiles? We joke in combat, we have these magical reloading missiles that somehow they crane missiles onto our ship in the middle of the ocean when we run out during training environments. That doesn't happen in real life. And so I said, like, hey, why don't we do this in the middle of the night? Well, ATG doesn't want to do that. It's too dangerous. It's too stressful. It's too whatever. But no matter whether you know the training's coming or not, if you get woken up to GQ drills in the middle of the night or a man overboard in the middle of the night, some part of you wonders, is this real? Is it fake? I know training's coming one night. Is it real? Is it fake? And your adrenaline goes a little bit more than if it's in the middle of the day, 10 o'clock in the morning, when you know it's coming. Um, So that's kind of where this idea came from. Make it a little more intense. Do the things that you can. And what I started working on was a 16-hour GDQ drill. 
and goes all day, all afternoon. And you have to figure out how to replace key watch standards because, hey, maybe somebody just got off the 18 to midnight, got maybe an hour sleep, and now they're having to fight shit. What do you do with that person? How do you replace them? How do you get them a nap? How do you get somebody a chance to eat food when you're trying to do damage control because you have holes in the side of the ship? When you're trying to get equipment back up because you have equipment casualties? When you're trying to fight the ship and fend off the missiles that are coming in while also taking the offensive and shooting down the enemy, shooting down the targeters. How do you do this? How are we supposed to simulate that if we know exactly what's happening and when and the training's only three to four hours? Um, Most of our trainings are really only two hours. Okay, 16 hours is a little much, but let's build on it. What's happened is, you know, because on deployment, they don't want to do something like that in the middle of the South China Sea because if we do it, all night training, everybody's exhausted the next day and then something happens, we are more at danger. So that's kind of the thing that we need to do in workups, in workup cycles leading up to deployment, which we just haven't had time for this year, right? Because we have maybe three underways since we got back from deployment, and most of them are for specific missions. Um, and this isn't really something you can do in court, something you kind of have to do underway, especially if you want the whole crew on board in the middle of the night to wake them up. It's something that's a work in progress on board, but what we've done instead is, you know, just amped up our training a little bit. We run the same scenarios in combat every time. We only have two that we can do with our system. But we have increased the realistic value of the damage control training, the combat systems training, the different casualties that we're taking and said, like, hey, if we're saying this missile hit in this certain area of the ship, we should only be losing systems in that area of the ship. You can't have a system down forward, a system down aft, and a system down midship from a hit that's back aft. That's not going to happen. Granted, there is some aspect of, like, when the ship takes a hit and it vibrates a little bit, something might shake loose. The realisticness of it is there there were times we took hits, like, starboard aft, and yet the damage control team was up forward because that's where the hole in the ship was reported. And so um, it's kind of one of those things we've tried to become a little more realistic with our trainings. and making sure the, the integrated training team is working together to compare notes and make sure that we're happening all at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot there. All of it resonates with me, right? So let's get into some of the root causes, I guess I would say, right? So one thing you mentioned is, you know, do you sense there's an unwillingness of leaders or an assumption they're making about their teams and their sailors that they can't handle this higher pressure training, right? Because I think it's important, right? I think the growth doesn't happen until you take someone to their limit. And then in training is when you find the limit, right? And I think training teams are supposed to push you to the limit. That's one thing I see. Another thing is, is there a lack of creativity by training teams and, or limits imposed by the system or the casualty you can impose? And the third thing, to what extent has this become? Because this is a theme I've heard, right, in several articles and conversations I've had, you know, this check-in-the-block approach to certification and training by ATG. Am I off on any of those three? You've touched on them, but can you go on those a little more? Absolutely. So I'm probably going to go backwards on that one. So EPG, yes, it's very much a check in the box. It's a, okay, can you handle this? We run the drills that we're going to run with ATG over and over and over again before ATG gets there. I would be surprised if there's ships that don't because we know what they're going to run. We know what they're looking for. So we run them over and over and over again. So by the time ATG goes there, you know exactly what's going to happen when. You've already made all the mistakes that you can make with that. So now I'm going to jump to system limitations. We have two scenarios that we can run that simulate fifth fleet one fifth fleet, one seventh fleet that work in our system that are pre-built that have all of the aspects we need. To build another scenario takes a lot of time that people just don't have. And so in order to build one from scratch, it would probably take months of 
dedicating your time to building that and putting every single track in the system that you need to have. So, and that's something that's generated at the unit, at the command? You can do that? Yes, we can. We can. Okay. So with my system, so we have the Battle Force Tactical Trainer, which is um, what we use to simulate training with other ships. And so we okay. have our whole strike group on the same, um, with our fleet synthetic training, on the same scenario running the same thing, right? And what we see with that is we have these two scenarios that we run so everybody on these training teams knows exactly what's going to happen and when. We ran weekly trainings. When we came back from deployment, it's about every other week. So we've run these scenarios so many times that everybody that's in there knows exactly what's going to happen and when, what mistakes they've already made. So then what happens when that is not the case? What happens when the reality hits and it's something completely different? Our reactions are in- instinctual now. You know exactly what to do and when with these scenarios that we've run. But two scenarios is not enough to really see the broad spectrum of what could happen and what what we need to be prepared for. And then as for the leadership, I think, you know, in the past on my ship, I have seen that there's some hesitation to push sailors past um, normal working hours, right? The circadian rhythm we've got, we're supposed to be on the same schedule every day, the same routine to avoid that burnout. Our new captain is very, very big on training. And I think that that's not so much a concern for him. A once a week throwing your schedule off for training is not a big deal. The concern that that he and, and the rest of the leadership has right now is, you know, when we're in the middle of theater, when we're out doing an actual mission, exhausting your sailors and taking away their energy for a training scenario is not necessarily what you want to do. And so I, I think that what what we'll see on our ship anyway is when we do get back, because we've seen it in transit, when we're in transit to and from theater, we do do some nighttime drills. They're usually a lot shorter so that people can actually get some rest. I think on a Saturday night, the night before a holiday routine, people don't have to necessarily get up and go to quarters on Sunday. You run a nighttime drill on in transit on the way to or from theater. You're up all night doing this, and now you have the next day where you can rest. Like People will still have to go to watch. People will still have to do things. Not everybody is going to get to get that rest. But the leadership, individual leadership, can work on that. And um, I think that we're going to see a lot more of that with our current, our current triad. Um, I think they're a lot more supportive of and understanding of that, you know, sometimes the crew needs to take a hit on their rest. Sometimes the training value that you get from losing sleep is worth it. Now, on the other hand of that, the junior sailors don't necessarily understand that. You know, as a seaman or a third class, you're going to be like, why are you taking away my sleep? You don't really understand necessarily the value of it. But what we have seen in the last couple of years with the collisions that we've seen, people have had to step up and fill in roles that they didn't necessarily know how to do. And so I'm hoping that that kind of encourages sailors if we emphasize that more, we talk about it more, that they realize that sometimes they're going to have to fill those roles in, which kind of goes back, you mentioned uh, Chris Miner earlier, that goes back to his article. Like there are times where people like myself are going to have to jump in and play damage controlman, right? I'm going to have to patch a hole in the walls on the side of the ship. I don't have a lot of experience with that, but I need to know how to do that because what if the hole's in combat and they don't have time to get up there before it floods out? It's a balance of readiness and crew endurance, right? So it's the norm is like day-to-day ops, you know, yeah, we work in circadian rhythms and these kind of things. But at time, you do got to flex that crew, I believe, right? You got to be able to take them up to go 24, 48, you know, um, we used to do this in these Gitmo exercises. <laughs> Remember those, Ward, back in the day, you know, when we go and deploy off Gitmo and we'd be at GQ for long periods of time, it, sucking rubber and gas masks and it sucked. The other point of it, though, is leadership has to communicate to the sailor why, why we're doing this, why this is important and what the reality of the tactical situation dictates. What you're talking about, Paul, used to be called ref tray. 
Um, yeah, you know, suck and rubber. Right. Yes. Um, and it was an endurex, right? You you were pushing everybody beyond their or to their limits, past their limits, uh, and and you you captured just right. Um, in terms of on cruise, do you have time to take a, ti- a TV timeout? No, you don't. So you need to have been there before, but you have to balance that against uh, safety risks. And and when you're flying airplanes or you're op- op- operating weapon systems or you're uh, you know have lookouts in in precarious positions or whatever where people kind of have to have their wits about them, you know you got to strike a balance there. But your point is well taken uh, in that we we need to sort of find out where those limits are. And obviously uh, that's that's not always, or that can be a gray area. You know, in my article, I talked about battle stations in boot camp. And one of the things that after I wrote it, you know, with the fire on the Bonhomme Richard, the Bonhomme Richard is basically a shell where you can see things that need damage control efforts. And one of the things, I don't know that I put it in my article, but kind of the concept I was working with there was if we had a battle stations type ship that we could go to and work on, and a fight as a crew in the roles that we're actually in, in the, the places we'll actually be during general quarters or during a battle that we can train on. If you're actually underway and you're you're exhausting the crew and pushing them to these limits of you know two, three days straight where they haven't got any rest, that does have some safety risks because you need people to actually be able to operate the ship, actually be able to drive the ship. And if they've been up for that long, you have a, a risk that maybe isn't necessary. So if you take the Bonhomme Richard and you turn it into a training ship, Yes, perhaps it's not the same platform as every single ship, but you can kind of simulate where people are going to go and you turn it into a training ship, kind of like what we have in battle stations. And you take the crew from each ship, you spend a week on that ship or a few days, 48 hours, 48 hours on that ship. You go, you fight and you figure out how you would do it then. That eliminates some of that safety risk of being out to sea and trying to do this. Well, that's a cool idea. Is anybody talking about that? Do we know? Not to my knowledge, um, I was talking with one of the junior officers on the ship, and we actually kind of started talking about it this last week while we were out to sea. I was talking to Chris Miner about it last night, actually, um, and that was kind of one of the things that came up was, how do we do this training? And I mentioned the Bonhomme Richard, and he's like, aren't they talking about doing something with it? So we were reading the articles on it, and there's not really any certainty of what to do. There is something out there stating, like, what if they do spend the money to refurbish it so that they can see how much it's going to take, how much time and effort it's going to take to refurbish a ship like that? But I think that it would be a better use to take it and turn it into a training ship. And at least that way, the West Coast can use it um, and then maybe do something similar on the East Coast um, to be able to have that available. But something that's decommissioned, something that you know there are ships coming up to be decommissioned, you could turn those into something like that. Ashley yeah, and Chris talking is kind of like the modern day insurgents, right? It's like, yeah, it's like. Luce and Mahan talking. I'm right? telling you. It's just amazing. Yes. Did you get a picture of that? You got to get a picture of that You when you guys get together. So you got, I'm viewing this intensity knob of training with a one through 10. And then you've got this kind of mark over the side you've scratched in. It says 11. So where is the knob currently across the fleet? Give me a number. It's not very intense. Um, even that final battle problem that I wrote about, I felt like we were at a five, maybe a six um, okay. for a few hours. And in reality, in real life, it's going to be higher than that for longer than that. And okay. so I don't think that any of us are really ready for a real a real life situation, whether it be a battle or a collision. Um, I think we proved that with the Fitzgerald and McCain. Like, they did a great job. Don't, don't get me wrong. They did a great job. They got their ships home and they saved as many people as they could. But were they prepared? 
I don't think so, and I don't think anybody really is. So the the comprehensive review has not solved some of those problems. You're you're not seeing a massive change from the summer of 2017. Uh, we have seen a change. Um, now, granted, the summer of 17 that was my first year on a ship, so I was still kind of learning my way around the ship and my way around damage control. What we have seen is we have seen an increase in the quantity of training, um, and so, to some extent the quality, but. It, I don't know that it's necessarily fleet wide because the change in the quality of training that I've seen is ship driven. I mentioned, you know, our senior chief that was on the USS Cole, he's a section leader, right? So he took his duty section through a damage control drill one day and they were like, there's nothing over here to plug this hole with. And he said, cool, there's dead bodies. What are you going to do? And that's the reality. And people thought he was joking. People were like, ha ha ha, that's funny, senior chief. And he's like, no, really. Sometimes you have to use the dead bodies to plug the holes because you don't have anything else around you. That's your shipmate. That's somebody you've worked with and lived with for possibly years. And now they're all you have to save the rest of the ship and save the rest of the crew. We were on Com2X when the report came out on the Fitzgerald. And it was my first Com2X. It was my first intense training. And I was a brand new second class. And I remember, you know, I was on watch when the report came out. And our master chief was up in combat on watch. And he asked me to print it out and bring it up. So we're reading it together, me, him, and this other guy that I worked with. We're reading through it together, and we read about, you know, the guy that had to close the hatch, knowing that it is sailors, knowing that that first class that had saved people were still down there. How hard is that? Can you imagine having to do that? But in that moment, you have to make that call. It's, you know, those few people that are still left in birthing or the hundreds of people left on the ship. How do you make that call? You know, I took some ethics and logic classes, and that train dilemma where do you steer it and run over the one guy to save the ship or do you keep going? Because if you take that action, you're killing that one guy, but you're also saving the hundreds of people that you'll save if you don't take that action. Or by saving the ship, you save mission, right? That's the broader effect. Risk the individual gets trumped by saving mission and saving platform, right? That could actually, a tactical loss can be a strategic loss too. So, all right, so... You want to go up to 11, we're at a 3 to 5, somewhere in there. So with any problem, good sailors propose recommendations. What do you propose? And I guess there's a variety, right, depending, because there's a lot of stakeholders of this, right? So there's the unit level, there's the ISIC, there's the TICOM, there's ATG. What do you want to recommend to those uh, owners of this problem? So I think it starts with each individual ship, right? You take your training teams on the ship, and that's kind of what we've done uh you know, with the combat systems training team on board and the, and the damage control training team. We had a new DC-1 show up about, I want to say about a year ago, um, and he and the, the senior chief, the DC senior chief, have kind of put together a more intense damage control training team, and they have built it so that it's more realistic, for one, and also they also bring in some junior sailors, some people that have never actually had to do those things, never done the training, and they make sure that every single time they're qualifying new sailors to come in and do those things. And with our combat systems training team, we are working a lot with them in our integrated training team environments to make sure that things are realistic. So I think it starts with each individual ship. It starts with the people that are running each individual training team. You know, we've started with our medical training team, make sure that they're in the same vicinity as combat systems training teams and damage control training teams when they run scenarios so that it's realistic, so that you don't have a man down up forward with your damage control efforts back up. They're going to be all kind of the same. Then it goes up to the ATG level, right? I know that we need ships to deploy and know that we need ships to meet the mission, but the attitude going into ATG inspections is, what are they going to do, fail us? Okay, we're about to deploy. What are they going to do? They need us to deploy. So if we fail this inspection, are they going to tell us no? 
Are they going to say, okay, you failed, but you're still deployable? Are they going to say, okay, we'll come back tomorrow and do better? Uh, they're going to make sure that we pass and they're going to make sure that we're deployable because they need us to be. There's not enough ships in the fleet to be able to say, hey, this ship isn't ready. Pull them out. So we, we're a uh, baseline nine on eight Aegis ship. So we have the baseline eight hardware filled with the baseline nine software. And the first deployment we did with it was last year. And we discovered leading into it um, during a missile shoot, a major software issue where missiles didn't fire as they were supposed to. And our um, auto special doctrine statements were not working properly. And so it took okay. a little bit more operator action to fire that out. A ship had already deployed with that when we discovered that issue. In my opinion, ATG needs to do a better job of making sure that sailors are actually ready to deploy and ships are actually ready to go out and fight the fight and defend themselves and defend, for us, we're a cruiser, right? So we defend the carrier. So they need to make sure that we are able to do our job. Instead of just saying, okay, cool, you guys are good to go. Have fun on deployment. Here's your lessons learned. Make sure you study them. Actually yeah. do some follow-up or do this early enough on that they can um, they can come follow-up and do better training with us. So when they see shortfalls, it shouldn't be, hey, we came in, you failed. You know, the crew sucks, CEO, you're fired. No, it's like, hey... <laughs> Here's why, right? So some component of it could be, you know, hey, you can dial up to 11 on your self-imposed trading. Some of it could be these technical fixes you talked about. And now they should take that back to the TICOM and drive that right through the SISCOM and get that help you need to. So it can't just be we're here to conduct oversight and certification uh, of the ship. I think ATG has a huge role, this advocacy piece of helping the ship have a voice to the chain of command on where they need material help, technical assistance, and other things as well. Okay, uh, so I think that kind of answered the next point I was going to talk about was kind of, you know, where do you need more advocacy? I think you can get more, you know, from the TICOM level. I think you can get more from uh, ATG and things like that. So let's break a little bit into this process of writing, right? So what was the feedback to your article, Ben, so far? I know I went on, I put it in my my new To the Deck Plates newsletter. I posted on social media groups, I tagged you, right, because I'm not trying to get you unwanted attention, but I want to highlight the fact that you're <laughs> daring to disrupt and make a difference with writing uh, because you care. So what's the feedback to your article been? My senior leadership loves it. They they thought it was great. Um, I actually, when I wrote it, I gave it, uh, my division officer at the time, he was an English major in college. And so I sent it to him and I was like, hey, I don't really know what to do with this. Help me figure it out. Will you edit it and turn it into something publishable and help me find somewhere to send it? And he goes, this is perfect for proceedings. And I'm like, what's that? So he explained it to me. He showed me some articles and he, he helped me kind of learn how to do it and reformat it. I sent him a draft and asked him to edit it. And the next day he said, hey, I sent it over to the editor at proceedings. So uh, they're going to take a look at it and let you know. And I was like, that's not what I wanted. Hold on. It's a draft. Um, so it's kind of interesting, but he was like, no, it's great. It's a great concept. It's kind of the thing, it's the type of thing that they look for. It's the type of thing that that interests uh, this magazine. So I've sent it off. And since then, you know, we've been through um, new chain of command, new triad, new leadership. And so they've all kind of read it. And it got me involved in the training team a little bit more. For the most part, junior sailors aren't really paying attention and don't really know. But I know when I mentioned stuff like this, when, you know, we got our new captain come on board that said, training heavy. He's like, I have been reported for overtraining before for exhausting the crew. People get really upset about, you know, what I do with training. I don't care. Good luck. It's important. And junior sailors, you know, react to that. They're like, why? We need time at home. We need time to, you know, be with our families. We should be taking time off. We shouldn't be doing all this training. We're exhausted. We're tired. It's the end of deployment, whatever. I went, hey, I wrote this article. They're going to publish it later this year. And uh, he's like, awesome. Yes. And so we that's kind of where we started spinning in that direction, that's kind of the same mindset that he has. Whereas 
junior sailors, while not necessarily reading the article, but just discussing it, are very much going, tired, I don't want to do this, I don't have time for this. Um, I'd rather just do my job and get some sleep. Why are we doing all this training? Because they don't necessarily understand the why. And like you mentioned earlier, like that's on the leadership. That's on the first classes and chiefs to explain to their junior guys why we're doing this. There's a good number of people on board that were not in the Navy for the collisions of the Fitzgerald and, and the McCain that don't necessarily understand that this is something that's real right now, that don't necessarily understand what's happening overseas and that the risk is increasing for ships right now. We could very well see a battle very well have to do these things in real life. And junior sailors don't see it that way. The Navy's a safe place. The Navy's some, somewhere that there hasn't been a battle, there hasn't been risk in decades. Um, and a lot of people have not seen risk to the Navy in their lifetimes. Unless you're, you know, special forces or with the Marines, you're not really seeing that risk. And so making sure that we explain that to junior sailors, making sure we talk about all of these things that had happened. And I hope that in boot camp, they're talking about more than just the cold. It seems like decades ago, right? They're talking about things like the Fitzgerald and McCain, things that have happened recently. Um, the fact that ships were shot at in the Persian Gulf recently and making sure that those things are highlighted with these junior sailors so that they kind of understand what's going on. Now, we've talked about Chris Miner a lot. Um, yeah. He reached out to me when he saw it. He was like, hey, are you the author of this article? Like, that's amazing. Here, let me show you mine. And we kind of started talking about you know, our different ideas and the things that we've seen in the fleet. And, uh, and I thought that was really cool to see somebody from the opposite coast from a different field in the Navy. And we're collaborating on these ideas and talking about things that we both kind of agree on. So first of all, welcome to the role of ambassador for writing and being an apostle of the U.S. Naval Institute. So what is your advice to your peers? E4 and below, they've got a perspective and some have written, but I think it's that E5, E6 that's really in the position to understand up through the chief's mess as well and translate, right? And you know that, right? That's one of your jobs is that piece in the chain of command is to be able to find solutions. So what's to uh, your peers on writing? So I am that annoying first class that when somebody's complaining about the training, I sit down and say, do you understand why we're doing this? Let me tell you why we're doing this. I know that, like we've talked about, I've only been in the Navy for six years. I am still a very junior sailor. Um, I happen to be in a rate where it's possible to make rank pretty quickly. I will say I did work hard and I do believe that I earned what I'd gotten, but it was also a lot easier for me as an FCA than say if I were a corpsman, right? But I believe that it's my job as a first class to sit down and explain those things to junior sailors. You know, there's a, there's a time and a place where junior sailors just want to vent and you need to just listen. And then there's a place where you can listen to them vent and then also try to help them understand what's going on. And I believe that that's our responsibility, like you said, at the E5, E6 level. Because if a chief comes in and is like, well, listen here, sometimes those E4 and junior are not necessarily going to listen to that. Sometimes they're going to be like, okay, chief, okay. But if an E5, the E6s are kind of on the borderline. It really depends on how they look at you, but especially an E5 or sit down and go like, I understand how you're feeling because I was there just a minute ago. But, um, and I think I'm in a unique position on my ship where at first I thought it was a hindrance, but now I, I try to utilize it as an asset. I was an E4 on my ship not that long ago. Um, I checked in, in at the end of 2016 as an E4. I made E5 in 2017 and I made E6 last year. And so there are people on board that remember me as an E4. You know, I have that different connection with people where maybe I was a junior sailor with them. But there are also other first classes that are more senior than I am that checked in as first classes that are also looked at that way. And what we can do is sit down and be like, absolutely, I understand how you feel. Let me explain it to you. Let me try to help you understand. Um, if you want to just vent, that's fine and I will listen. But I also want you to understand why we do the things that we do and why this is important. Because if you don't understand, then you're just going to be this frustrated for a long time and it's going to hinder your job. 
So I think we'll finish on that note. So again, Penny Officer First Class Ashley Derenbecker, her article, Final Battle Problem, Turn It Up to 11 in the October edition of Proceedings Magazine. Great read for anyone in the chain of command uh, on a surface ship or anywhere, frankly, in the Navy. Yeah, thank you. It was it was an honor being here. It's a pleasure um, talking about these things. I get very passionate about training. Uh, I think it's very important to our fleet. And that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.